Please uh, turn with me to John's first letter, chapter 3, and we'll read together verses 11 through 18. 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. And this is God's Word. This is something that He has given to us. He's given it to us for our good, for our joy, for our help, for our comfort, for our encouragement. He's given us His Word because He loves His people. So hear His Word. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Thanks be to God for his Good, good word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that there is evidence among us of your presence, of the presence of the gospel, of the effects of the gospel, uh, because, Lord, by your grace in the midst of this congregation, there are deeds which are the evidence of that grace and proof of real love. As we consider your word, uh, help us to be encouraged, thankful, uh, but Lord, help us to be challenged as well. Uh, And may we continue into the days ahead as we have in the past, showing real evidence of love for the brethren. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not entirely sure where I am. Uh, my body is here, but uh, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm dizzy. I, I have to tell you, it uh, it's a long way from Masoma, Tanzania, to Vero Beach, Florida. Um, it just takes a lot of time, and um, it's it's uh, exhausting. And yet, what a what a rich, rich, um, phenomenal time uh, we all had. There were actually eight of us who traveled together. Boo, Graves, uh, and I traveled from here. And Marcia Yant, who's a good friend from our church uh, in Orlando uh, and who has made these trips each year, was with us. And then there were uh, others from uh, McLean Presbyterian Church in Northern Virginia. John Hutchinson, the senior pastor, uh, traveled with us. And uh, some members of his church, um, two, in fact, uh, Alicia Catula, whom you all have met, uh, most of you have met, uh, traveled with us, uh, as did uh, Christina Font, who is new to McLean Church, 
uh, actually went to Indiana University and majored in Zulu and Swahili because at 14 years of age, she had this real sense that God was calling her to missions uh, and to service in, in East Africa. Well, she works for the State Department now, and she goes to Tanzania, um, has been there uh, a number of times, but I think as a result of this trip, the Lord uh, has really reinvigorated that sense of call to missions, and it's not going to be a surprise to any of us uh, to learn that she leaves the State Department and ends up uh, working full-time in Tanzania. So you can pray for Christina. And then there are a couple of folks from Tupelo, Mississippi, Lisa Shannon and Max Hutchinson, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon, and he worked in the health clinic for the week that we were in Misoma, along with Lisa Shannon, who is a nurse and uh, who assisted him in that. So it was, you know, it was a multifaceted trip. It was a remarkable uh, trip. There, again, there was a lot of stuff that was learned, uh, a lot of things that were very encouraging, a ton of need, as you can imagine. Uh, and I want to take some time this evening. I hope you'll uh, come and, and hang out this evening and, and come and bring some questions so that we can we can talk about uh, the time in Tanzania, and I can share some more stories. Um, but what I really want to do this morning is, uh, is express to you from your brothers and sisters in the Diocese of Mata and Ukerewe in northwest Tanzania, their deep sense of um, appreciation, their deep, deep sense of thankfulness for the specific ways in which you as a congregation have um, partnered with them in the work of the gospel and the specific ways in which uh, you have sought to support them and help them and minister to them. Um, maybe to you it, it, it is somewhat expected for me to come back and bring greetings and bring uh, thanks from them and, um, you know, maybe... Maybe the full force of this sense of thankfulness doesn't really fall upon you. I don't know how it could. I, I don't know how you could really absorb their sense of appreciation uh, and gratitude for this relationship that we have, uh, apart from being there and seeing the faces and meeting with people and interacting with them. But I, I can tell you that from everything, the, the whole range of things, from those of you in this congregation who are uh, supporting pastors through the Adopt-A-Pastor program, to those of you who, who contributed $125 to purchase a bicycle so that, so that a pastor or an evangelist doesn't have to walk miles but could actually ride on a bicycle to visit people in villages, uh, to well-drilling projects. Um, the effect of these things upon the lives of these people simply can't be measured and I'm, I am bringing to you from them um, a, a deep, deep sense of appreciation for the various ways in which uh, you have partnered with them and are partnering with them in the work of the gospel. The conference, uh, obviously, is at the center of this whole thing. Uh, there were 300 pastors and wives uh, who gathered together in Musoma. Uh, for four days plus of teaching, there was preaching on both ends of that, uh, but the conference was um, and has been uh, at the center of this. And uh, again, I want to take some time this evening just to kind of share stories, and, and I hope you'll come. I, I really do, because 
there is a beautiful, beautiful thing that is going on here between our church and the churches of this diocese. Um, and the reason that I wanted to read this passage this morning, 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17 uh, in particular, but this whole passage is because I, I really do want to say to you um, that, that you as a congregation have taken seriously, um, maybe not as seriously as you know, uh, but, but you have taken seriously that the fact that you have brothers and sisters in Tanzania on the continent of Africa. You, you have taken seriously the responsibility that John talks about in these verses, the responsibility of demonstrating real love for your brothers and sisters in need. Um, this passage is being fulfilled here in this congregation, through this congregation, and not just toward pastors and wives, the, the evangelists, the, the folks in the diocese in Tanzania, but through the other ministries that you support, whether we support them officially as a church or not. Uh, ministries like Habitat for Humanity and CareNet and Youth for Christ and uh, the other things that, that you and we together support. There is real evidence of the fulfillment of what John encourages these folks about as he writes to them, this real, tangible evidence of love for your brothers and sisters. And I'm bringing you greetings and thanks from the folks in Tanzania uh, because they see that demonstration of real love, not love uh, in word alone, but love in real deed and action. Um, someday you're all going to get to meet him. Uh, someday you will know who, who Paul Cachetto is. <laughs> someday you will know who, who uh, Martin Kabanja is. Uh, someday you'll know these people in the way that I know them. But right now what I can do is bring to you a, a real sense of thanks from them for the real demonstration of love that you as a congregation uh, have demonstrated. Um, when I first went uh, to Tanzania in 2003, eight years ago, the verses, and I, I just think it was one of those Holy Spirit kinds of moments. We all know how that works, where you, you just, you know, something pops into your head and, and you, you know, you know that it comes from God. Uh, the verses that popped into my head as I was actually on the flight coming back from Tanzania the first time were verses 16 and 17 of 1 John 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm being personal and autobiographical in this, but I came back from Tanzania that first year having been with my brothers and sisters, having been with your brothers and sisters, uh, having seen the struggles that they have simply to survive, coming back to the United States where we have things and we do things and we don't even think about the fact that we have them and we do them. I go into my kitchen and I flip a lever and pure, safe, clean drinking water comes out. Here's a funny story. When Catula was here, Alicia Catula was here last year, 
Uh, he stayed with us. Let's see, a year and a half ago now at our missions conference. He stayed with us, and one evening he cleaned up the kitchen. He cleaned the dishes. He put the dishes in the dishwasher. And it took him forever to do that because he would use a little water, and he would then turn it off, and he would wipe off the plate, and then he would put it in the dishwasher. And then he flipped the thing up again, and he'd use a little bit more water, and he'd clean off that dish, and he'd put that one in the dishwasher. It took him forever because every time he cleaned it, he turned off the water. I let it run. I let it run. I don't even think about it. And eight years ago, coming back from, from being with my brothers and sisters there, your brothers and sisters, very different language, very different culture, very different skin color, very different living conditions, I came back asking myself the question, how, is, how can I, possessed of the world's goods, do something with those goods to love my brothers and sisters? And so these verses, have, they've been with me for eight years. Um, and they've, they've formed a, a, a kind of a, a foundation upon which I've thought about this relationship with these folks in Tanzania. Uh, and you all are engaged in that. Uh, and I'm really grateful for it. Um, and I want to do basically two things in the remaining minutes. I want to take just a few minutes to reinforce this idea that when we do this kind of thing, we really are fulfilling something that is at the heart of the gospel. That the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel both of word and deed. It is a gospel both of word and deed. And as we do this, partnering with these folks in Tanzania and are engaged in other ministries, we are fulfilling something that is a true and vital element of the gospel, something that is at the core of the gospel of the kingdom. It is an element of biblical teaching. And that is the business of engaging in ministries of compassion, of mercy, of caring for the needs of those who are less fortunate than we are, because they are our brothers and sisters. And this idea of ministries of mercy, ministries of compassion, um, this is grounded in who God is. It begins with God himself. Um, you think, I can think of a, a, any number of different passages, but the passage that I, I'd encourage you to think about is Ephesians chapter 2. Um, you are the beneficiaries of God's mercy, of God's compassion, of God's grace. Of his love. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespass and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4. But God who is rich, rich in what? Rich in mercy, rich in compassion. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. Now there are three words there in that text. Uh, and they all have to do with who God is. There, there are all kinds of things in the scriptures that reveal the character of God. But these three words reveal something about God. And, and what this, these three words reveal 
it becomes what is at the core of the gospel of the kingdom. God loves, right? God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us. God loves. And God doesn't love in a kind of an indiscriminate way. I know this is mysterious and challenging, but God loves in a particular way. He loves particular sinners. He sets his affection upon particular sinners. And when he sets his affection upon particular sinners, he acts in mercy toward those sinners. His heart is turned toward those sinners. And his grace becomes the evidence of that mercy. Okay? If you love someone, and, and the one whom you love is in distress, your heart is turned toward that one who is in distress. And you want to do something to relieve the distress of the one who is suffering. Grace becomes the evidence of the mercy which is grounded in the love that you have for this one who is in distress. You love, you show mercy and compassion, you act in grace to relieve the distress of the one who is suffering. I have a friend, a fellow I went to seminary with, who tells this story about himself. When he was nine years old, he went with a couple of his friends to see the movie Bambi. And you know the story, right? You know the story of Bambi, uh, who lives happily and blissfully in the woods until human beings show up. That's another story. But the hunters come, and Bambi gets separated from Bambi's mother. And and in the midst of all of this, where, you know, there's a fire and there's stuff, all this stuff happens. In the midst of this, my friend, nine years old, is all caught up in the story and Bambi being separated from his mother. And he stands up in the theater, nine years of age, and says, screams out, somebody find his mommy. Right? Well, what is going on there? His heart, I mean, he's caught up in the story, and his heart is turned in the direction of the one who is in distress. That's mercy. Grace, undeserved favor, God acting because of compassion to relieve the distress of those who are suffering. That's what the gospel is all about. And it's all about God seeing us in our misery and acting to do something to relieve our distress. You see, it's at the core of who, or who God is and what the gospel is. And that compassion spills over um, in, not only into ministries of word, but it spills over into God's, God's ministries of deed as well. There's some wonderful passages that express this, reflect it. One of them is Exodus Chapter 22, it's really a startling passage. Paul, or, uh, uh, Moses receives this word from the Lord, and the Lord is forming his people. It's after he's delivered them from their bondage in Egypt, after he's brought them to the mountain, and he's given them the Ten Commandments. What follows then in these next chapters is a kind of an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. And the passage that I, I want to read is Exodus 22, verses 21 to 27. Listen to the things that God says. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You see see the people who are there. Egyptians are there, right? Aliens, strangers. You know there were Egyptians that came out of Egypt with Israel? And how are those Egyptians to be treated? They're to be treated with compassion. Why? Because God is compassionate. Aliens and strangers from other nations that find their way into the midst of the people of God. How are they to be treated? They're to be treated with compassion because God is compassionate. How are widows and orphans to be treated? They're to be treated with compassion because God is compassionate. It's another passage. is Psalm 68. It's a psalm that, uh, that praises and exalts God that... Uh, that seeks to lift him up as great and glorious. Just the first six verses. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy, sing to God, sing praises to his name, Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. And then listen to this. All of this language of God being victorious and to be exalted and lifted up. And then verses 5 and 6. Why is he to be exalted? Because he is a father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. This is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Follow it through the Old Testament. Uh, We see God in so many different ways evidencing himself to be a God of mercy, a God of compassion. So it's grounded in the character of God, this, this business of Ministries of the word by which people are rescued from sin and by which they are brought into fellowship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. And ministries of deed, evidences of real compassion extended to those in need. And that's something that has been characteristic of this church and continues to be characteristic of this church. It's a privilege to be a part of it. God cares for the destitute. And when we express concern for our brothers and sisters in distress, when we express our concern for the destitute, when we act to relieve their distress, we're tapping into something that is at the core of who God is and what the gospel of the kingdom is about. Jesus in his ministry fulfills all of this. He reflects all of this and he fulfills all of this. He is God incarnate. In Luke 7, verses 1 through 9, when Jesus heals the servant of the centurion, he is fulfilling laws concerning the alien and the stranger. Think about it. 
Who is a centurion? A Roman soldier, right? A Roman officer. And when Jesus heals the servant of the centurion, he is expressing compassion for an alien, for a stranger in the midst of the land. Not only an alien and a stranger, as a Roman centurion, he is an officer of the occupying force. He's the enemy, in effect. But Jesus, who fulfills all righteousness, who fulfills the Old Testament laws concerning the alien and the stranger, extends compassion to the servant of a Roman centurion. Luke 7, verses 11 to 17, when Jesus has compassion for the widow at Nain, she is a widow, she's lost her husband, and then her son dies, when Jesus shows compassion for the widow at Nain, raises her son and gives her son back to her, Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament laws of compassion and mercy. He's giving evidence of the fact that God does relieve the distress of the destitute. Mark chapter 8, 24 to 30, when Jesus hears the pleas of the Syrophoenician woman concerning her daughter who is possessed by a demon, when Jesus heals this daughter, the daughter of a Gentile, the daughter of a non-Jew, a non-Israelite. He is fulfilling what is commanded in the Old Testament regarding the alien and the stranger and the destitute, the distressed. Jesus has had mercy upon them. And to the extent that we do the same thing, again, we're tapping into something that is at the core of who God is and what the gospel of the kingdom is about. So that's the first thing, is just, just to say to you, this business of responding to the needs, the real needs of our brothers and sisters, really is at the core and the heart of who and what we are as a church. And again, the whole of the Old Testament and into the New Testament is filled with all kinds of evidence that the ministry of the gospel is a ministry both of word and of deed, that love, the love of the gospel, expresses itself both in truth and the heralding of the truth and in relieving the distress of those who are distressed. So that's the first thing. It's a biblical principle. It's a biblical idea. But then here's the second thing. Here are the specific ways in which we're fulfilling. You are fulfilling. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. You're fulfilling 1 John 3, 16 and 17 by sending me. By sending me. By letting me go. And not just giving me permission to go, but really participating with me as I go. Um, Many of you responded to the emails that I sent and told me, that you were praying for me and praying for the conference and praying for the pastors. You're participating in this as I go to Tanzania. First time that I went in 2003, um, Ketula, Elisha Ketula, the bishop's son, told me that it was a really significant thing for us to go to Africa and minister to these pastors and wives. 
And then he said this, and I've not forgotten it. He said, these pastors, the folks in my father's diocese, are not unaccustomed to seeing Westerners come. What they are unaccustomed to is Westerners coming back. You go once. There are lots of reasons not to go again. Come tonight and I'll give you all the reasons not to go. (laughs) It is not an easy place to get to, and trust me, it is not an easy place to be. I've, I've I've got a witness, Boo Graves. He said the food wasn't as bad as I told him and the accommodations weren't as bad as I told him. I'd rather err on that side. I'd rather exaggerate how bad it is rather than create the illusion that it's some sort of holiday that you're taking when you go to Tanzania. Catilla said, it is really huge that you've come back and come back again and again and again. I know these people. I know Henry Kabiti. Henry Kabiti is the one who sees me across the room and calls me by my Swahili name. Mikey Maloney. (laughs) Every word in Swahili ends with a vowel. So I have a Swahili name. Mikey Maloney. And Henry Kabiti comes running across the room to give me a big bear hug. I know Paul Cachetto. I know William Shatebo. I know these folks. We've built a relationship. And you give me the privilege, the freedom to go before you, uh, supported by you, by your prayers. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and I I feel this about these Tanzanian pastors. He writes to the Thessalonians, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become dear to us. That's how I feel about this. These folks are my dear brothers and sisters. They are your dear brothers and sisters. And you are fulfilling 1 John 3, 16 and 17 by sending me in your behalf to be engaged in this ministry. Here's the second thing. As I go, as we go, we go sharing the gospel of God. We go sharing, I go sharing, preaching and teaching the gospel. Um, That's what I did for the conference. I taught on two things, um, two main themes. What do our people as pastors, what do our people need to see in us, and what do our people need to hear from us? What do they need to see in us? What do they need to hear from us? And I spent a couple of the morning sessions with the pastors answering the first question by saying what our people need To see in us more than anything else is our need of the gospel. In their culture, and and there's a a reason for this, okay, but in their culture, pastors lead by their righteousness. They lead by their righteousness. And I spoke very specifically to that issue. And encourage these pastors that they not lead with their righteousness, but they lead with their need. 
their need of the gospel. And I use the Apostle Paul as my example, who throughout his letters, as he writes to the Philippians, as he writes to the Romans, as he writes to the Ephesians, gives us all kinds of evidence that he, as an apologist, as a theologian, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher, he needed the very gospel that he was preaching to these people and writing to them about. And the second thing that I talked about, what do our people need to hear from us? And I suggested to these pastors that what our people need to hear from us more than anything else are the blessings of the gospel. They don't need to have their fingers wagged in their faces. What they need to hear are the blessings of the gospel. And I took as my main text for the week, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access into his presence in this grace in which we stand. Justification, peace with God, access to the Father, standing in the Father's presence. And then the last thing, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Those were the things that I preached and taught about while there. It was one particularly poignant moment. It was just one of those moments when God really showed up. And I was talking about this idea that because of what Christ has done, we have access to the Father's presence. We have access into his very presence. And I used as an illustration this picture of little John John Kennedy. Maybe you've seen it. It was obviously before his father was assassinated. He's He's about two years old, and he's standing in the Oval Office, and he's standing on the presidential seal, and he is surrounded by all of the members of the president's cabinet. And the president is standing there, and he's looking down at his little son. And I said, that is a picture of the gospel. That is a picture of the truth of your standing with Jesus Christ as a pastor, as a pastor's wife, and what your people need to hear is that they have the same security, the same standing in the presence of God that little John John Kennedy had in the presence of his father. And when little John John Kennedy comes into the Oval Office and stands on the presidential seal, the only thing he's concerned with, the only thing he's interested in, is talking with his father. And the wheels of government come to a screeching halt so that the father can attend to his child. And then I said this. The knowledge of God, which comprehends everything, everything there is to know, everything that could be known, in all of the possible relationships that everything could possibly have to everything else. The knowledge of God is what the theologians call undistracted. And what that means is this. When God focuses upon you, he's not distracted by focusing on somebody else. And I walked out into the middle of the room and I looked at Paul Cachetto and I said, when I'm focused on Paul Cachetto, I can't pay attention to William Shatebo because he's over here. But God's knowledge is not like my knowledge. God's power is not like my power. 
God's knowledge is infinite. God's power is infinite. And God is able to focus the full measure of his attention on Paul Cachetto and at the same time focus the full measure of his attention upon William Shetabo. And every single child of his gets the same attention from the God of heaven and earth. His knowledge of you is not distracted by everything else that's going on in the universe. And I will tell you, the room erupted. There was applause. I've never been applauded before. There was applause. There were shouts. It was celebration. Why? Here's why. Because these guys, these husbands and these wives, labor, labor in isolation. They labor in loneliness. They're not able to call somebody and say, hey, let's have lunch. And to know that there is somebody who inhabits the universe focused on them, particularly with the full extent of his knowledge and his power, was an extraordinary comfort to their hearts. I'll tell you, there were 300 pastors and wives representing over 150 congregations, representing between 15 and 20,000 people by those pastors. And the stuff that I got to talk about with those pastors will go to those villages and they will talk about those things with those 15 to 20,000 people. That's a fulfillment of 1 John 3, 16 and 17. And then here's the third thing. Thousands and thousands of people are benefiting from well drilling projects in the diocese. We've only done three. I'm more committed than I've ever been to putting a well in every village where there is a church in that diocese. We went to the village of Kencombio, where I visited for the first time eight years ago. It's a village of about 3,000, 3,500 people. There is a well in that village. Again, come tonight. I'll tell you more stories. But this very, very pretty woman stood up representing the whole village and read a letter of appreciation, which I'm going to have translated. I'm having it translated so that we can frame it and stick it on a wall here someplace. Stood up and read this this wonderful letter of appreciation to people at Christ the King Presbyterian Church who had made the funds available to put a well in that village. One of the people, after she read this letter, one of the people said the children, this is a rough translation, the children have fewer worms. Dysentery, stuff that comes from waterborne diseases. The health of the children in this village is improved, hundreds of them. This old man stood up and said, I used to have to walk to the lake to take a bath, two and a half miles to Lake Victoria, to wash in dirty water. I'd get to the lake, I'd take my bath, and then I'd have to turn around and walk back home two and a half miles. And by the time I got home, I'm sweaty and dirty again. I can be clean. We've done three well projects those well projects touch somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. People whose health is improved, 
people whose children are healthier, they are healthier, women who have time. This sweet lady stood up and said, I can clean my house because I don't have to walk two and a half miles to get water. I can keep other things clean. I can be clean. My children can be clean. That's a fulfillment of 1 John 3, 16 and 17. And this congregation has taken those responsibilities on. And I'm really grateful for it. This old man came up to me after our little gathering, after this letter was written and after his little speech, he came up to me and he grabbed my hand and he shook my hand and he said, you have a good heart. I didn't bother to tell him he was wrong. You have a good heart and God is blessing us through you. Now I take that, you know, I take that as an expression of gratitude, which I bring home and leave with you. You have made these things possible. You as a congregation are fulfilling 1 John 3, 16 and 17. So I thank you. I thank you for the pastors. I thank you for the wives. I thank you for the children. I thank you for the Diocese of Mara and Ukaraway. I thank you for myself. Um, again, come tonight. Let me tell you more stories. Um, but I really do want us to resolve to continue to pursue these ministries of word and deed so that the glory of Christ can continue to be expressed. The love of Christ can continue to be expressed here in our midst and from us out into the world to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the king. You are ruling and reigning at your Father's right hand. And thank you that you have gathered us up into your purposes for the world. Uh, Thank you that you have given us the privilege, the extraordinary privilege of proclaiming and of living the realities of the gospel of the kingdom. And we ask you humbly, but we ask you, that you would show yourself faithful by granting us everything that we need so that these ministries might continue to prosper, so that you might be praised. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.